Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 25th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present part two of our commentary on the Gospel of John, and it is subtitled, The Light of the World. Introducing our presentation of the Gospel of John in the opening segment of this series, we gave evidence from the earliest post-apostolic Christian writers, the so-called Church Fathers, and from the texts of those books of our Bibles, which are attributed to John, which is sufficient to demonstrate that one and the same John the Apostle the young man who of all the apostles had been closest to Christ was indeed the author of the Revelation, the first epistle of John, and this gospel. There was also circumstantial evidence given to help establish that John was indeed the author of the two shorter epistles which had been attributed to him from the earliest times. Here we shall offer a brief summary of our discussion. Little is known of the life of John after the early chapters of Acts, and he last appears in Scripture in Jerusalem in 47 AD, and the events which are recorded in Acts chapter 15 and the early verses of Galatians chapter 2. Later in his life, ostensibly after the deaths of the elder James, around 62 AD in Jerusalem, and Paul of Tarsus about that same time in Rome. John is in Ephesus where he committed this gospel to writing. Then during the reign of Domitian, sometime after 81 AD, John was exiled to Patmos on account of his Christian profession, which is where he received the revelation. After the death of Domitian in, in 96 AD, John was able to return to Ephesus. If the revelation was not already committed to writing, it certainly was after John's return, which is indicated in the accounts of the early Christian writers. All of John's three epistles were also written in Ephesus and very very likely around this same time as John fulfilled the role of an elder and apostle to the Christian assemblies at Ephesus and the neighboring districts. This John had reportedly done until his death sometime during the reign of Trajan which began in 98 and ended in 117 AD. If John were 16 when the ministry of Christ began in 28 AD, he would have been no younger than 86 when he died, and probably a little older than that. In our opening presentation, we discussed only the first five verses of John's Gospel. We shall repeat them here and offer another summary of some of our conclusions. From John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with Yahweh, and the Word was Yahweh. He was in the beginning with Yahweh. All things were through him, 
and without him was not even one thing. That which was done in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness comprehends it not. We have already explained the depth of the meaning of the word logos and everything which its use here implies. From that we concluded that Yahshua Christ is the fleshly embodiment of everything which the word of Yahweh stands for in the Old Testament and therefore he is the physical manifestation of man's estimation of the God of the Old Testament. He is the God of the creation taking part in his creation and he is the law and the prophets. This is the essence or the fabric of Christianity. For example, the word of God says in Genesis chapter 15, After these things the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Therefore, Yahshua Christ is the manifestation in the material world of that promise, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Again, we read in 2 Samuel chapter 22, As for God, his way is perfect. The word of Yahweh is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust in him. For who is God save Yahweh? And who is a rock save our God? Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul of Tarsus, speaking of those who were in the Exodus with Moses, said, And did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So once again we may see that Yahshua Christ is the physical manifestation of the same God who presented himself in different ways to man in the time of the Old Testament. A rock in a desert has no less a physical manifestation than the body of a man, which even Abraham proclaimed was only dust and ashes. Genesis chapter 18. So rather than a trinity, scripture may be described as a quadernity, but then there is the burning in the bush. So perhaps we should perceive God as a quintinity, a group of five. Or the fire on a mountain, which gives us a hexinity. Or the glory in the temple, so we may see God as a heptinity, or a group of seven. Yet there are other physical manifestations of one and the same God. So we can count an octinity, noninity, decinity, or more. But Yahweh is truly an infinity. And our God cannot be contained by the comparatively fatuous numerological systems of men. Here I only endeavor to illustrate the folly of what is called the Trinity. Since it is evident that Yahweh had said to Moses, I am that I am, as the King James Version reads in Exodus 3.14. And Yahshua Christ is the I am that he chose to be, the very word made flesh. He is another physical manifestation of God, but he is not a separate person from God.
that Yahshua Christ is the fleshly incarnation of this same God is evident in many other ways in John and in the rest of the New Testament scriptures. Such as the event where Thomas had realized that Yahshua had overcome death and therefore he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. In contrast, Herod Agrippa I was struck dead because when the people imagined him to be a god, he did not deny them. So we read in Acts chapter 12, And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a god, after Herod Agrippa I had spoken, and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms, and gave up the ghost. But where Thomas had referred to Yahshua Christ as God, the response was not a denial. Rather, it was a confirmation, where it is written in John chapter 20. Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. What did Thomas believe? He believed what he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Blessed are they that have not seen, and yet have believed. This is the same Christ, who professed that the first of all the commandments is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, as it is recorded in Mark chapter 12. In the prelude to the promise of the new covenant, in Jeremiah chapter 31 we read, Hear the word of the Lord, hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him, as a shepherd does his flock. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. Yahshua Christ is that shepherd, the good shepherd, and therefore Yahshua Christ is also he that scattered Israel, as well as he that has redeemed Jacob, the fulfillment of the promise being certain long before the act was completed. The Apostle Peter in chapter 1 of his first epistle said, But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Yahshua Christ is the physical embodiment of that word, as well as the God who uttered it. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with Yahweh, and the word was Yahweh. There is no distinction. During our first discussion of these opening verses of John, I had made a few last-minute comments concerning the dangers and fallacies of the so-called Trinity Doctrine. I wanted to elaborate on that here, and then I realized that I, I had already discussed the topic in the recent past, in a presentation of the prophecy of Malachi, in part two, the corrupted priesthood. So here I shall repeat and somewhat revise that. We must reject any notion of Trinity as a doctrine. Yahweh our God is real. He is omniscient and he is omnipotent. But he is also one, regardless of how 
he chooses to manifest himself. So he can be God the Father and God the Son and the burning in the bush and the rock in the desert and the fire on the mountain and the voice from out of the clouds. He can be all of these things at once and at any given time if he so desires. When the apostles realized that he had overcome death, they proclaimed him as God, not because Jesus somehow became as God, but because they themselves realized at that point that he was God. Knowing from the implications of the scripture that he was Yahweh who had promised that he would redeem Israel. That is the essence of the word made flesh. Some fools have said to me, Oh, God was not the pillar of fire, but he was in the pillar of fire. That is tantamount to saying, Oh, God was not Christ, God was only in Christ. But the very purpose of the physical manifestation is to represent the ethereal being for which the physical manifestation is a vessel. And the physical manifestation would not at all exist except for that purpose. So the fools are foolishly splitting hairs. Even our physical bodies are not the real us, so to speak. Our bodies are only vessels for our spirits. Our spirits are the real us. The pillar of fire, the rock in the desert, the glory in the temple, and the man who stood on the Mount of Olives were all vessels for the spirit of one and the same God. The Trinity doctrine is the first of heresies. There is no real support for it in the original scriptures, except for the coincidence that in the apostolic age, God manifested himself first in two ways, from the spiritual plane as a voice from heaven and in the form of the son of David, and then in a third way, which is referred to as the Holy Spirit which is merely the manifestation and operation of the spirit of that same God within our physical world and without a vessel to represent it physically. This is not really a third person at all, but rather it is only another manifestation of the first person. When Christ was near to his departure and he promised the apostles a comforter, he proclaimed, I will not leave you comfortless, as the King James Version has it. I will come to you. But the word for comfortless in that passage is from the same Greek word, orphanizo, from which we derive the English word for orphan. And it really means fatherless showing that Christ is also God the Father as well as God the Holy Spirit, where he assured them that they would receive a comforter, and he said, I will come to you. He did not say, he will come to you, but I will come to you. The Trinity doctrine is a dangerous heresy because it leaves space for antichrists to claim that they can worship a part of the deity which is somehow void of Christ.
Therefore, Christians are deceived into imagining that Jews and Muslims and other antichrists ultimately have the same God, which is a lie and a deception. Therefore, the Trinity doctrine is really just a way to compromise with devils. The antichrists themselves introduce this doctrine so that they can maintain a facade of legitimacy, but beneath the veneer there is every form of wickedness. With it they can lay claim to a piece of the Godhead and purport to have a path to piety without Christ. When in the Gospel Christ himself informs us that I am the way and the truth and the life, no one gets to the Father except through me. Then almost immediately after that he said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So Christians must understand that Christ, being Yahweh God manifest in the flesh, there is no part of the deity which could possibly be void of Christ. One cannot read the word of that Old Testament God without imagining that those are the words of Christ, because he is that word made flesh. And one cannot read the words of Christ without imagining that they are the words of Yahweh, the Old Testament God, because he is that word made flesh where he spoke to himself, where he prayed to himself. He did so because he lived as a man, for an example to men, for the benefit of men and not for himself. Therefore all of the devils must be rejected because there is no God without Christ, who is God. There is no room for devils in the kingdom of heaven, and neither should there be any space given to them here on earth. Now we shall commence with our presentation of John chapter 1 from verse 6. There was a man, we'll only cover another five verses this evening. There was a man, having been sent by Yahweh, whose name was Johannes, or John. He came for a witness, in order that he would testify concerning the light, that they all would believe through him. Now the phrase, whose name was Johannes, or John, is literally, in Greek, the name for him, Johannes. Or in some of the codices, the Sinaiticus and the Beze, the name for him was Johannes. There are a few variations among the ancient manuscripts in the first 14 verses of John's Gospel, and none of them are significant. There are very few variations in these first 14 verses. Of course, Johannes is the Greek form of the common name John. I chose to maintain Greek forms of the names throughout our translations except in a few cases, such as for Noah or Abraham, 
or for God in Christ, where I use Hebrew forms generally. And I've already given my reasoning for that. But I have not yet fully explained my reasoning for maintaining the Greek forms of names. My thinking in this area was to bring an awareness of a separation of culture to the reader, since often modern readers fail to understand that the words expressed in the context of their original culture often do not mean what they mean to modern readers. So I thought that keeping the foreign forms of the names would help the reader understand that in some degree we are outsiders looking into a different world. While I am not yet certain of its effectiveness, I realized the potential utility of this method when in 1998 I had read the translations of Homer by Robert Fitzgerald, who had done that same thing in his English versions of the Iliad and Odyssey. I forget what his explanation was for doing it. There are two apparent prophecies of John the Baptist in the Old Testament. The first is in Isaiah chapter 40. But this is a prophecy with an immediate fulfillment as well as a long-term fulfillment. Earlier in Isaiah and in the historical accounts in Kings and Chronicles, we see that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had taken ill, and that much of Judah had been carried into Assyrian captivity, and Jerusalem itself was threatened. So we read, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God, this being Isaiah chapter 40 from verse 1. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her, that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received of Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. From the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. I'm sorry. In the immediate context, Jerusalem had a reprieve from the Assyrians, and a time of relative peace which lasted almost a hundred years until the earlier prophecy, just before this, of Isaiah chapter 39 was fulfilled with the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah himself was the voice which cried that message in the wilderness. However, throughout the surrounding chapters, there is also an overarching theme of salvation for Israel and Judah, in spite of the conquests of their enemies. And this prophecy also continues that theme. The true pardon for iniquity is in the person of Yahshua Christ. And John the Baptist was the prophetic fulfillment of the voice crying in the wilderness. In that regard, we read a little further on in the same chapter. Behold, 
Yahweh God will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work with him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd, he shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. So in Matthew chapter 3, it is explained that John the Baptist is indeed the subject of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40, where the apostle wrote, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Esaias, or Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The connection of John the Baptist to this prophecy in Isaiah was also made very clearly in Luke chapter 3. There are many scoffers who often claim that the apostles of Christ took passages of prophecy out of context in order to apply them to Christ. That is certainly not true because the scoffers fail to see and in fact cannot see the aspects of prophecy which clearly have a dual meaning which in our recent presentations of Zechariah we described as a near vision and a far vision. The second significant prophecy of John the Baptist is more explicit and is found in Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. But who may abide at the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. That messenger, John the Baptist, prepared the way for Yahweh, incarnate in the person of Yahshua Christ. Part of that preparation was to purify the sons of Levi. Then, when Christ himself was baptized by John, he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God. With this it is evident that John symbolically fulfilled the role of the Levitical priest, being a Levite himself and washing both the priests and the lamb before the Passover, as the law required. Anyone else that he may have baptized along the way was only a collateral benefit, and those who refused his baptism were not legitimate priests in the first place. By that means, John was a refiner, as the silver and the dross were made evident. Now, made evident in his baptism. Now while Matthew and Luke connected John the Baptist to Isaiah's voice crying in the wilderness to announce the coming of Yahweh, John's language here does not identify John the Baptist precisely as either the messenger of Isaiah chapter 40 or of Malachi chapter 3. 
However, generally, it can be understood to refer to either of those prophecies. John's Gospel instead focuses on the purpose of the messenger, the message of the messenger, having informed us that he was to testify concerning the light, and saying not that he was the light, referring to John, but that he would testify concerning the light. The light was the truth, which coming into the society enlightens every man. This is, of course, the same light which John described in verse 5, where he said, And the light shines in darkness, yet the darkness comprehends it not. The theme is continued in verse 14 of this chapter. And the connection to the God of Genesis is reiterated, where he wrote, And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his splendor, splendor as the most beloved by the Father, full of favor and truth. There, the word for splendor, or glory in the King James Version, is doxa. This word characterizes what we had said of the word logos, that Logos is not only the thought projected by God in his word, but it is also the estimation which men have of the Old Testament God by his word, the concept of God as it can be understood from the body of his word, since before Christ men could only know God through that word. This word doxa, translated as glory in the King James Version and as splendor here, is primarily an expectation, a hoping for, opinion, estimation, or repute. The meaning is deeper than a mere appearance. And here in verse 14, it describes the character of Christ. It refers to the truthfulness of his words as well as to his ability to express them, to form and substance, not merely to form. In a messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, in relation to the children of Israel who were being incrementally taken into Assyrian captivity, we read, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by way of the sea, beyond Jordan, in Galilee, or the circuit, in Galilee of the nations. The circuit of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in a land of the shadow of death, Upon them has the light shined. This light was connected to Yahshua Christ and his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, which professes that Christ fulfilled this prophecy. In Psalm 43, in a plea to Yahweh, we read, O oh, send out thy light and thy truth, let them lead me, let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. In Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. The Septuagint has 
law rather than word. Christ is that word made flesh. Here, insisting that Christ is the light come into the world. John once again identifies Joshua Christ as Yahweh, the God of creation, the light of truth, at least according to an interpretation which we are now going to propose. Oh, people aren't going to like this, I'm certain. The fundamentalists among us. In Genesis chapter 1, we read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. But physical light cannot exist unless something burns energy in order to generate it. This was upon an earth which was without form and void, and the creation of the sun and moon are yet to be described. They don't happen for another three days in day four. The light of day and the darkness of night preceded them, and therefore they are still only concepts rather than actual physical manifestations. As it is only the first day, and there is no sun until the fourth day. So we believe that this aspect of the creation in Genesis, the creation account in Genesis, is actually describing the order of an important concept that before anything else existed on earth or in the heavens, light and darkness are distinguished as what emanates from God and what is not of God. Darkness is not of God. So we read, And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness night. The light makes manifest the darkness. We don't understand darkness without light. That's why I say darkness is not of God, but darkness is inevitable when light is created. Just like sin becomes inevitable when law is created by God. But Yahweh never spoke the darkness into existence. It did not need to be created. And he never called the darkness good. The creation account is not a scientific treatise. Rather, it is written in a way so as to teach men particular lessons. And the lesson here is that everything which does not originate with God is darkness. Yahshua Christ, whom John tells us, is the light is also the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So John's words certainly seem to imply that Christ, being the light come into the world, is also God himself coming into the world as an element of his own creation. Everyone who is of God can understand Yahshua Christ, because there is light in them, that light representing the Spirit of God the spirit of man which comes from God. So we read in Isaiah chapter 8, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait upon Yahweh that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. 
Behold, I and the children whom Yahweh have, has given me are for, are for signs and for wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. Should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? Or why should the living, the children of Israel, seek after the dead? To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, referring to the law and the testimony, it is because there is no light in them. Later in his first epistle, John writes in the opening chapter, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Likewise, in another messianic prophecy found in Isaiah chapter 42, we read a promise from Yahweh in regard to the scattered children of Israel. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light before them, and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them, and not forsake them. The children of Israel, who had fallen into the idolatry of the accursed people around them, were described as being in darkness. So a little earlier in that same prophecy we see another allusion to the Genesis creation where it says thus saith God Yahweh he that created the heavens and stretched them out he that spread forth the earth and that which comes out of it he that gives breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein I Yahweh have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the nations, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am Yahweh, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. The word of God represents the light, the first word spoken by God in Scripture called light into existence. And Christ, being that word made flesh, is the light come into the world. But here John wrote, The light was the truth which coming into the society enlightens every man. Yahshua Christ, the light coming into the society, enlightens every man. In him the darkness is made light before the children of Israel. But not all presumed men can accept Yahshua Christ. And that brings us back to our theory. Those which are from God can maintain the word of God. And those who cannot keep the word of God do not have the spirit of God in them. Therefore they cannot be from God. And according to John, we can deduce that they cannot properly be men, because the light enlightens every man. The light reveals what every man is made of, and it is made evident by Christ himself that there are men planted by himself, the wheat, which are the sons of God, and there are men who are spurious.
the tares planted by the devil. As Paul had written in Hebrews chapter 13, one is a son or one is a bastard and there is no third choice. One is of the day, being born from above or born from of God. Or one is of the night, being born from below or born out of rebellion to God in the corruption of his creation. Paul himself alluded to this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I should say, 1 Thessalonians, perhaps. I hate church protocol. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. I am quoting the King James Version. For when they, evidently the children of darkness, as we shall see, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. As we see in Genesis, Yahweh did not create the darkness on the earth. It was already there. So Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever does make manifest is light. And John in this gospel wrote in chapter 3, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So while the light enlightens every man, the apostles knew that there were people here, if we can call them people, who can never be thus enlightened. Their failure to be enlightened reveals their true nature, <coughs> that they are not of God. Asserting that Yahshua Christ is the light come into the world has meaning in yet another dimension. It is a direct refutation of the ancient claims of kings to be the bearers of light and the ancient assertions of many pagan religions. We see in Isaiah chapter 14 an admonishment directed at the king of Babylon which reads in part, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? That word Lucifer was not written by Isaiah as a personal name or title. Rather, it means light bearer. And using it, Yahweh is mocking a man. He's mocking him. The king who thought that he was the light of the world. That he could be his God. In ancient times, the kings of the nations believed themselves to be the light of their respective worlds or their particular societies. Therefore they esteemed themselves to be the incarnation of the sun on earth. This is evident in Hittite inscriptions presented in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament 
a collection of inscriptions edited by James B. Pritchard and published in its third edition in 1969 at Princeton University Press. I will refer to it as simply Ancient Near Eastern Texts from here on out. On page 203 there is a treaty between the Hittite king Mercilus and Dupi Teseb, king of the Amorites. The treaty opens with the following lines. These are the words of the sun. Mercilus, the great king, the king of the Hattie land, the, the Hittite land, the valiant, the favorite of the storm god, the son of Supi Luiulimus, or something like that, Supi Luiulimus, believe it or not, the great king, the king of the Hattieland, the valiant, Supi Luliumas was the name of Mercilus's father. A footnote by the translator says, Son is the title with which the Hittite king is addressed. The Hittite kings, and that's the end of our note, the Hittite kings thought that they became gods when they died. So further on, speaking of a rebellious subject king, Mercilus said, When my father, when my father became God, and I seated myself on the throne of my father, Azirus, Azirus being the rebellious king, Azirus behaved toward me just as he had behaved towards my father. Now later on page 204, in a clause regarding future relations, we read again, As I, the son, am loyal toward you, toward the same king of the Amorites, Dupi Teseb, do you extend military help to the sun and the Hattie land, meaning the land of the Hittites. If an evil rumor originates in the Hattie land that someone is to rise in revolt against the sun, the king of the Hittites referring to himself as the sun, and you hear it, Leave with your foot soldiers and your charioteers and go immediately to the aid of the king of the Hattie land, or the sun. On other Hittite inscriptions, on pages 210 and 211 of ancient Near Eastern texts, are preserved letters of instructions from the Hittite king to the commanders of the border guards regarding the pagan temples situated in the various towns. They are commanded to make an inventory of the gods' utensils and send it before the sun, or to submit the inventory report to the king himself. Then further on, concerning matters for judgment, if anyone brings suit by means of a sealed brief, the commander of the border guard shall judge it according to the law and set it right. If the case is too much, he shall send it before the sun, meaning that the king himself would hear cases involving great amounts. In another context, in a chapter containing Sumero-Akkadian hymns and prayers, presented in ancient Near Eastern texts on page 389, 
there is a line referring to the enemy of the king, and an accompanying footnote says, the word translated king literally means sun, and is fundamentally the same word as the name of the sun god. In this case, the scribe has indicated, by a phonetic complement, that the word is to be read Samsi. In other words, not as a title for the sun god, but as a word for the sun, which refers to the king. Elsewhere in the text, he writes the name of the sun god consistently without a phonetic complement, even when it is grammatically in the genitive case. It is probable, then, that the sun god is not meant here. Frankfurt has pointed out in his Kingship and the Gods, on pages 307 and 308, that in Mesopotamia, as well as in Egypt, the king often bore the epithet, the sun. Such an interpretation of the text fits in well here, within the general context, meaning in these Sumerian Akkadian, Sumero-Akkadian hymns. As it was in Sumer and Akkad, and among the Hittites, so it was in Egypt. The Egyptian pharaohs also believed that they became divine after death, as also did the later Roman Caesars. <coughs> in early Egypt, the sun god I will call him Ra here. I'm not sure if it should be Ra or Ray. I think it should probably be Ray, R-A. So I'll use Ray. In early Egypt, the sun god Ray was closely associated with the pharaoh. The pharaohs were seen as the embodiment of Horus. And Ray and Horus were linked together with the title Ray Horakti or Ray, Horus of the Horizons, for which various interpretations are given. From the 5th dynasty, the pharaoh was referred to as the son of Ray, and the name of Ray was a part of the throne name of every king thereafter. As Egypt became an empire, composite gods Amun-Ray and Atum-Ray emerged and the concept of a creator god was fused with the concept of a sun god. Not long after the time of the Exodus, Pharaoh Amenhotep III gave himself the epithet Atentien, which means the dazzling sun disk. Returning to ancient Babylon, from a time which is far earlier than that of Isaiah, we see in a chapter of ancient Near Eastern texts titled Laws from Mesopotamia and Asia Minor on page 165 a portion of the Code of Hammurabi which makes the following boast. The king who made the name of Inanna glorious in Nineveh in Amishmash, the devout one who prays fervently to the great gods, the descendant of Sumu Lael, the powerful son and heir of Sin Mubalid, the ancient seat of royalty, the powerful king, the son 
of Babylon. This is Hammurabi describing himself in all of these epithets. The son, S-U-N, the son of Babylon, who causes light to go forth over the lands of Sumer and Akkad. This is about 1900 BC, right around the time of Abraham and Isaac. The king who has made the four quarters of the world subservient, the favorite of Inanna am I. When Marduk commissioned me to guide the people aright, to direct the land, I established law and justice in the language of the land, thereby promoting the welfare of the people. <clears throat> that was perhaps 1,200 years before Isaiah addressed the king of Babylon as Lucifer or the light-bearer in his own time and shows how long it had been that these pagan ideas had prevailed. Around the same time as the birth of Christ, the Zoroastrian cult of Mithra was beginning to spread from Persia into the Roman Empire. While the Romans had long had their sun god, Saul, later known as Saul Invictus, and the Greeks had Helios, Helios being the Greek sun god, they were relatively minor gods in ancient literature. But Mithra was an angelic divinity of light, a protector of truth, and the god of oaths and covenants. So the assertions concerning Christ were also an affront to the pagan religion of ancient Persia, which at that time was a significant portion of the Parthian Empire. So the assertion of Yahshua Christ and of John on his behalf to be the light and the truth come into the world supplants the claims of all these kings and lawgivers and the pagan religions of the surrounding nations from the dawn of antiquity. Later on in John's Gospel, in chapter 12, we see the same assertion in words attributed to Christ himself. I am come a light into the world, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hears my words, and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Now this is the King James Version, and as we shall see in the last portion of tonight's presentation, we would render that word world as society. And we will explain ourselves briefly in the minutes to come. Those who reject Christ <clears throat> reveal by their rejection their own true nature and origin. Since the light enlightens every man, and his word, which is the word of God, 
shall judge them in the end, they will ultimately be rejected. Finally, we read in Revelation chapter 21, in the description of the city of God, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, the person of Christ, remains the physical manifestation of Yahweh, the invisible God. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor unto it. That would be the sheep nations. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. Yahshua Christ is the creator of the light. He was the only light at the beginning, and he shall be the only light at the end. Continuing with one more verse from John chapter 1. He was in the society, and the society came to be through him. Yet, the society knew him not. The King James Version has this passage to read. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. So here we must ask, what is the world? Is the world the entire planet, as denominational Christians typically claim? Or is the world only a small portion, or a certain segment of the planet? So here we shall present, and also augment with more recent research, an article which we first wrote and presented at Christagenia, in August of 2010, titled, What is the World? We are obligated to include this here because we cannot expect those now following our commentary on John to find this much older article. One cannot possibly understand the Gospel of John as he wrote it without first understanding what he could have meant when he used words which are now translated as world. Notice that we said words. There are three Greek words which appear in the scriptures of the New Testament and which are commonly translated as world in English. They are ahion or eon, cosmos, and oikumene. The first two of these words give us our English words eon and cosmos. It has become very important to the doctrines of mainstream denominational churches that whenever these words appear and are translated as world, that they are understood to refer to the entire planet and everything or everyone on it. However, that was certainly not the case to the ancient Greeks. It was certainly not what was meant by the apostles. And it is the meaning of these words to Greek readers in the first century which should govern how Christians must understand them. Because the modern conception of the word is certainly alien 
to any ideas which the Greeks themselves had when the New Testament was written. It was also alien to later Christian writers such as Irenaeus and Martin Luther. They did not understand the word world to mean the whole planet. Irenaeus in 180 AD and Martin Luther in 1543 AD did not understand the word world to refer to the whole planet. First, each of these three words, often translated as world, shall be discussed. Unless otherwise noted, the definitions are all from Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon. The first word, ahion, or eon, is a period of existence, one's lifetime, life, an age, a generation, a long space of time, a definite space of time, an era, epoch, or period. Hence it is its usage in plural. Eis tus ahionas means forever. The related word, ahionius, is lasting for an age. Hence its usage in plural. I'm sorry. The related word ahionius, my eyes jumped up a space, is lasting for an age, everlasting or eternal. <clears throat> According to Strong's Concordance, these words were rendered world or worlds, a total of 42 times in the King James Version of the Bible. While the word world has meanings which transcend its ordinary spatial sense, and as we shall see below, the original meaning of the term was indeed temporal and not spatial, the general perception of the words meaning today, the word world, is certainly spatial and not temporal. Rendering ahion and ahionius, which always have a temporal sense in Greek, meaning they always refer to time, rendering them as world, which today is most often perceived with a spatial sense in English, can create serious misconceptions in the interpretation of Scripture. The next word, and the word which appears three times in this passage of John, John chapter 1 verse 10, is cosmos, which appears approximately 182 times in the New Testament. According to account of the verses in Multingeden's Concordance to the Greek Testament that I did 15 years ago when I first wrote this, about 85% of those occurrences are in the writings of John and Paul. I think I first wrote this in 2006 when I first translated John. This was a part of my notes which I have in a notebook today so that was 12 years ago I'm sorry 
About 85% of those occurrences of the word cosmos are in the writings of John and Paul. The related verb cosmeo is to order, to arrange, to deck, adorn, equip, furnish, or dress. The definition of a related verb is always important to the understanding of the definition of a noun. So cosmeo means to order or arrange and Liddell and Scott define cosmos as order, good order, good behavior, decency, the form, the fashion of a thing, and of states, order, or government. Secondly, it can mean an ornament, a decoration, an embellishment, or dress. And third, it could refer to a regulator. And fourth, the world or universe from its perfect order, mankind as we use, quote-unquote, the world in the New Testament. That last definition, where Liddell and Scott show how the various New Testament translators and commentators perceive the meaning of the word world in the Bible, deserves further scrutiny. But first, of the other words translated world in the King James Version, Ahion and Ahionius, which we have just discussed, they are literally age and lasting for an age. They are temporal and not spatial terms. And that in itself may give further insight into the flexibility of the meaning of the word world in the King James translator's minds, especially once the original meaning of the word is examined. Second, there is another word translated world that does indeed explicitly refer to geographic area, to a geographic area, and that word is oikumene. Once we understand what oikumene means and how it was used, then perhaps we can perceive the meaning of the word cosmos as the Greeks did. In the edition of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary found on the internet, two relevant definitions of the modern English word cosmos are given. The first an orderly, harmonious, systematic universe, which is the way the term is used in modern times. And the second, a complex, orderly, self-inclusive system, which is close to the original Greek meaning of the term. A cosmos is the order of something. And in biblical and historical writings, the cosmos is the order of the oikumene. Liddell and Scott define oikumene, which appears in the New Testament approximately 15 times.
as the inhabited world, a term used to designate the Greek world as opposed to barbarian lands. So in Roman times, the Roman world. Strabo, the geographer, who died about 25 AD, and therefore who had written not long before Paul, described the Oikumene in his 17 book Geography. It included practically all of the lands inhabited by the white races, and not only the Romans but the Parthians, the Scythians and others of Asia, and all of northern Africa, as well as Western Europe. Theodorus Siculus, writing about 40 BC, perhaps a hundred years before Paul, referred to the lands about India as the limits of the inhabited world, using that same word, oikumene, in his Library of History, Book 1, Chapter 19, Paragraph 7. This was the oikumene, the physical world which the race of Adam inhabited which is referred to in Deuteronomy 32.8 and Acts chapter 17, verse 26. The physical world, in spite of the fact that Strabo, Diodorus, and others who used the term knew very well of the lands inhabited by alien tribes in places such as Africa to the south and India or China to the east, which were not considered a part of the oikumene, nor could they be included in their perception of the cosmos. In Luke chapter 2, we see the same use of the word oikumene, where it is translated as world, and it says, And it came to pass in those days, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be taxed. So, all the world, to Luke, was the land ruled over by Caesar Augustus, which he had the authority and the ability to tax. And that was actually only a very small portion of the planet. So, the following is from Strabo of Cappadocia, the famous G Greek geographer who died in 25 AD. So he wrote this not long before the ministry of Christ began. And he wrote it in defense of the importance of the study of geography. And he said, And that other argument, it seems to me, is adduced with a special force in reference to present-day conditions. Namely, that the greater part of geography subserves the needs of states. For the scene of the activities of states is land and sea, the dwelling place of man, and that's that word oikumene. The scene is small when the activities are of small importance, and large when they are of large importance, and the largest is the scene that embraces all the rest, which we call by the special name of the inhabited world, or oikumene. And this, therefore, would be the scene of activities of the largest importance. 
Moreover, the greatest generals are without exception men who are able to hold sway over land and sea, and to unite nations and cities under one government and political administration. It is therefore plain that geography as a whole has a direct bearing upon the activities of commanders, for it describes continents and seas, not only the sea inside the limits of the whole inhabited world, or oikumene, but also those outside these limits. And the description which geography gives is of importance to these men who are concerned as to whether this or that is so or otherwise, and whether known or unknown, for thus they can manage their affairs in a more satisfactory manner. If they know how large a country is, how it lies, and what are its peculiarities, either of sky or soil, but because different kings rule in different quarters of the world and carry on their activities from different centers and starting points and keep extending the borders of their empires, it is impossible either for them or for geographers to be equally familiar with all parts of the world. Nay, the phrase more or less is a fault much in evidence in kings and geographers. Where the word world or the phrase inhabited world appears in this portion of Strabo, the Greek word is oikumene, and we can clearly see that the oikumene was not the entire planet as he explicitly mentioned portions of the planet within and outside of the Oikumene. An overall examination of Strabo's Oikumene reveals a description of the lands inhabited almost exclusively by the white race of his time. In this manner, Luke used the same word to describe only that portion which Caesar had the power to tax. The greater portion of the white world in Europe, northern Africa, and the Middle East was indeed under the power of Rome. It should be quite evident that if the Oikumene was the portion of the physical world inhabited by the Adamic man, the white man, then the cosmos described the order, decorum, and arrangement of that Oikumene. While the Oikumene was the physical world, the cosmos was its society and its embellishment or arrangement. Of course, the heavenly bodies were considered by the Greeks and Romans to be only another part of that arrangement, and much more an important part of their ancient world than we perceive them to be of ours today. The ancients actually used the heavenly bodies to keep track of the times and the seasons, <coughs> to govern their lives in areas such as travel and agriculture. But that was only a small part of the cosmos. The sum total of the ancient concept of cosmos can only be described by us in one word as society. And that is the way in which we translated it in the Christogenian New Testament. Support for this idea that cosmos is society is found in the May-June 2004 issue of Archaeology Odyssey.
on page 26 in an article entitled, Is Homer Historical? by one Gregory Nagy. And while I can't agree with all of the author's opinions concerning Homer and his writings, the definition of cosmos found in the article on page 31 is a good one, where he explains that to the Spartans, the cosmos was the sum total of their government and their social order, their society. There Nagy specifically stated that the cosmos also referred to the social order of Sparta as idealized by the Spartans, the cosmos, as it were, of their society. Just as we have seen in ancient Near Eastern texts, an assertion by the ancient king of Babylon, the lawgiver Hammurabi, that he was the king who has made the four quarters of the world subservient, since four quarters are a whole, did Hammurabi live over the entire planet? Did he, I'm sorry, rule over the entire planet? Or did he rule only a portion of the ancient Near and Middle East? It is plainly evident in history that he only ruled over a small portion of the planet. But to him, that small portion was all four quarters of his world. And he was the son, of course, S-U-N. From a source much closer to the translators of the King James Version, which is a Christian writer that they all must have been at least familiar with, we shall see once again what is meant by the word world. We recently said the following here in a presentation titled Christianity in the Old Testament Part 1 An Introduction What is a Catholic? And I quote myself Now we have already made the assertion that the world is not the planet. Here we want to quantify that statement. There are statements throughout the early Christian writers that refer to the whole world. For instance, Irenaeus in Against Heresies, Book 1, Chapter 9, makes the remark that the universal church, moreover, through the whole world, has received this tradition from the apostles. Unfortunately, the translators themselves display a Roman Catholic bias here. But if we examine the Greek transcripts, the word Catholicus was translated as universal. However, we have already demonstrated that such was not the meaning of the word. The corresponding Latin phrase in Irenaeus is Ecclesia autem omnis per universum orbum hanc accepted ab apostolis traditionum. The English translation here is deceptive, as universum is an adjective modifying orbum, or world, but definitely not ecclesia or church. Literally, it should say in regard to what had preceded that the whole assembly throughout the entire world received this from an apostolic tradition. This one example among many helps to establish that the world of Irenaeus was not the entire planet. In his time, Christians were not spread all over the planet, but only within the white European world. The world of Irenaeus was the Roman world and not the entire planet. But nevertheless, to Luther, 
the whole world was not the entire planet. This is evident where Luther mentions the world. In chapter 13 of On the Jews and Their Lies, there he wrote, and this is only 70-something years before the King James Version was translated, there he wrote, It is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the Gentiles in all the world accepted without sword or coercion, with no temporal benefits accruing to them, gladly and freely, a poor man of the Jews as the true Messiah, one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, and persecuted without end. Now there are thorns in this statement also. Luther was most likely confused and thought that Jesus was a Jew because he learned much of his Christianity from converso Jews. Now we can certainly establish that with many proofs from history and scripture that Christ was a Judean, but he certainly was not a Jew, not as we know the term Jew or the people it represents. His sheep heard his voice and they followed him. The Edomites, Canaanites, and other bastards rejected him because they, who retained the label of the Jew to this very day, are not his sheep, as he himself had told them. Notice, however, that Luther said that all the Gentiles, the Gentiles in all the world, accepted Christ using the past tense. At Luther's time, the Indians, Asians, Arabs, Turks, and others were rejecting Christ while Roman Catholicism, which Luther rejected as Christianity, was being forced on the squat monsters of the Americas by the sword, in a manner which Luther also rejected. He said that all the Gentiles had already accepted Christianity without such, without sword or coercion. So he wasn't talking about what the Catholics were doing in South America. Therefore, to Luther, Christian Europe alone represented the Gentiles, all the world. This is certainly a far departure from the Universalist theologian's view of the world as the planet and everyone in it which is surely not an accurate view when compared with the ancient texts and the original meanings of the words. Yet by necessity, in the biblical context, I must understand the, rever the word, I must understand the word to refer to the society in the sense of the Adamic society. Anything more or less is intellectually dishonest. Interpreting scripture like interpreting any other archaic writing, one cannot honestly change the meaning of the word or assign it a meaning that it never had. But in its original authors and still presume to understand the original message. They're changing the meaning of this word and they can't understand the original message. Not to take all of this a step further, 
It may very well be that the way in which the King James Version translators understood the word world is itself quite different than how we understand it today. If we investigate the word world in the American Heritage College Dictionary in the third edition, we find that it is derived from an old and Middle English word. We are old. W-E-O-R-O-L-D. And we are referred to an entry for a supposed Proto-Indo-European word, wero, in their appendix of Indo-European roots. When we check this entry, we find that the word world comes from the Germanic word were, which is akin to the Latin wir, for man, and a Germanic word alt, which is a life or an age. And that is the word from which we get our word old. Virl, from the Latin vir, also means manly. When the Germanic words were and ald are put together, the word world means age of man. Therefore, originally, in English, world is a temporal term and not a spatial term. It means to refer to our Adamic age, and it does not mean to refer to everyone and everything on the planet or especially to the planet itself. Our confusion over the meaning of this word has led us into total confusion when attempting to understand our own literature and especially our Bibles. Why do we let Satan publish dictionaries? The world is the age of Adamic man and it should be nothing else because it is only the white Adamic nations which Yahweh God concerned himself with throughout our Bibles. As evidenced in Genesis chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 32, Luke chapter 2, and Acts chapter 17. The world is not the planet and all it contains, not even in English, and certainly not in our Bibles. I should say, not even in King James's English. We will continue from this point in the Gospel of John in two weeks, Yahweh willing. Next week we will be on a road. I know what I'm doing next Saturday. That's already mostly written. But I don't know what I'm doing next Friday. Tomorrow night, Donald Fox and another End Times update. A discussion on immigration and the Camp of the Saints. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and never the God of the Jews, and good night.